give your money to people that are prudent, have been through good and bad times before, and try to get realistic rates of return. Realistic rates of return is much better than saying, the market is in a free fall. I'm now going to go in at the bottom and buy something. If you look at the Forbes 400 list in the United States, there are 400 people who are the wealthiest people in the United States. Not one of those is somebody who didn't know something about investing, went into the investment market at the bottom of a recession and picked a lot of great stocks and companies to buy, and all of a sudden they got into Forbes 400. That does not happen. So be wary of trying to find the bottom in the market and be wary of thinking the market is topped as well. Hello and welcome to the 10th live webcast series brought to you by Investec Wealth and Investment. Our focus is on markets and investing in the time of COVID-19. My name is Nozi Pushabalala and it is an absolute honor for me to be the moderator of this conversation. This is the conversation that has been activated globally, uh, touching more than 40 countries in any one conversation. And we've seen the likes of Philip Hammond, of James Anderson, of Howard Marks, coming into the space with their unique insights, surfacing learning about viruses, about global pandemics, about markets and psychology, about this new world that we're stepping into, but also giving us so much learning about ourselves. And I think we all agree that in this time-poor world, out-of-the-ordinary conversations do not only give us out-of-the-ordinary access to global leaders, but they allow us to cut through the noise, to tap into meaningful partnerships and relationships, to deliver unprecedented value at a time when our clients need it the most. Now, our guest today needs very little introduction, especially for our clients. He was a guest of ours a few years ago in South Africa when we launched our partnership with the Callout Group. But before we start engaging with him, it gives me a great pleasure to introduce uh, the chief executive of Investec Wealth. His name is Henry Blumenthal, and he's going to give us a few introductory remarks about our guest today, David Rubenstein. Henry, over to you. Thanks, uh, thanks, Nozi. At the beginning of this millennium, the National Education Association of America was mandated to produce a guideline to prepare 21st century students. They identified four skills that would be critical to teach in schools, and they became known as the four C's. Critical thinking, creativity, communication, and collaboration. In hindsight, that document was prophetic. Its authors could not possibly have known when writing it about the global pandemic that would engulf our planet. But they may have predicted that it would be the four C's that would save us. One, critical thinking. That is the ability to discover the truth in assertions. And in this crisis, separating fact from opinion has literally become a matter of life and death. Two, creativity. Creativity encourages us to think differently, differently than convention demands. And we've had to find creative solutions to everything, from functioning under lockdown to medical solutions. Three, 
communications. This insidious little virus even attempted to isolate us from each other. But we have overhauled our communications mechanisms, evidenced by the many thousands of invested clients in this webinar today. Four, collaboration. The establishment of collaborative platforms, connecting scientists, connecting uh, politicians, connecting healthcare professionals, connecting economists, connecting statisticians, all so that each may augment the efforts of others. We have also borne witness to a willingness to help those who have been most impacted, thus showcasing an empathy that few knew mankind had in its collective consciousness. But most important in this combined endeavor will be that ability to pull all the threads together. And I would like to be so bold as to suggest that to do that, we need a fifth C, curiosity. David Rubenstein is curious. Before the age of 29, he had graduated with the highest honors from college, qualified as an attorney, worked for one of the top three legal firms in New York, and became deputy domestic policy advisor to President Jimmy Carter. Then, before he turned 40, David had co-founded the Carlyle Group, today one of the largest private equity firms in the world. David has made transformative philanthropic gifts to a vast array of causes. But his most outstanding quality, in my view, is his endless desire to learn. In both of David Rubenstein's shows on Bloomberg TV, peer-to-peer -to -peer conversations, Leadership Live, David never dominates. He gives his guests the opportunity to share what they know. That is a rare talent, and one which I was privileged to witness firsthand when hosting David in South Africa just a few years ago to mark Investec Wealth's involvement with the Carlyle Group. David, it is leadership like yours, propelled by your curiosity, that will ultimately allow mankind to prevail over the many challenges that we face. We look forward to a most enlightening 40 minutes in your company. Thank you so much for agreeing to join us. So David, maybe let's tap into that curiosity by starting off at a big picture level. We've seen COVID-19 literally throw the world into turmoil. But in addition to that, I think you might agree that it's begun to expose some fault lines that existed even pre COVID-19, I'm talking about inequality, populism, anti-globalization. And I guess the first question to you is, how do you see this playing out in your view? And in particular, as you engage with world leaders in business, in politics, in civil society, what do you think they should be doing about it? Well, that's a complicated question. Let me see if I can give an answer that is appropriate. Um, let me talk about the health situation first. 
Obviously, COVID has produced a health crisis, the likes of which we haven't seen in a century in the world. There is an enormous effort underway to get a vaccine. The United States government has put billions of dollars into helping to get a vaccine. I've talked to many of the people involved in the process, interviewed many of the CEOs. I am reasonably optimistic that by early next year, one or more vaccines will be deemed to be healthy and effective. However, we still have to make certain that they are produced and that they are distributed, and that takes some time. For everybody should remember this. Vaccines are complicated things to produce. The shortest time ever produced for a vaccine was the mumps vaccine, which took four years, start to finish. The polio vaccine took about seven years. Uh, We're now trying to telescope all of that into about one year, which is very difficult. Now, it's possible because we have so many companies and so much money involved in it, but I do think that we should recognize that until there is a vaccine, many people around the world are not going to feel comfortable in social gatherings of the type we've been used to our entire life. So hopefully that will happen. Second, with respect to the time before the vaccine is apparent, I do think we've got to do a better job, certainly in the United States, in social distancing, wearing masks, and recognizing that this is a virus that will kill you. There are 140,000 people who have been killed in the United States so far, 140,000. There are now projections that that could double or triple before we get a vaccine. So in my own case, for example, um, I'm 70 years old. So I am in danger of getting the disease and having a bad effect because people older seem to have a worse effect. So I'm trying to be very cautious. My own daughter, who's 35 years old, got it. Her husband, 35, got it. Their two-year-old grand, uh, their two-year-old daughter got it, and their six-month-old um, son got it. So four members of my, my family have had it. They fortunately have recovered. So I do think that we've got to be very careful in terms of the, the health effects. Talk about the economic effects. The economy around the world has been more or less in a slow growth, if not recession area, because of COVID. People are not going to work. While people are working remotely, it's harder to get things done remotely. And many people have lost their jobs. If you are in a job that is in a small business, it might have gone out of business. If you're in the travel industry, the concert industry, the movie industry, many other things which require people to gather, uh, it's not really been productive. And therefore, many of you are probably out of work. In the United States, we've had about 30 million people out of work. So that's produced a very economic uh, challenging situation. In the United States, we've been able to deal with it because we've borrowed a lot of money and helped shore up the economy, and it's still got some challenges. In other parts of the world, the ability to borrow enormous amounts of money and deal with it is not there. So many people are suffering, and I think in the emerging markets, the situation is going to get worse before it gets better because the disease has not yet completely spread throughout the emerging markets, and I'm not sure they're going to have the health facilities and the financial resources to deal with it Uh, the way that we have in the United States and Western Europe, and we haven't done a great job in the United States. In terms of the long-term effects, clearly people are going to live differently. People are not going to travel quite as much. People are not going to be gathering quite as much for some time. People are going to learn how to work remotely. And sadly, some people will find that their jobs are seen as being um, not necessary, and therefore some people will lose their jobs. I'm afraid they'll have to be retrained. It's going to be a complicated situation. The life we now live um, is going to be a different life, or I should say the life we've lived over the last five years, 10 years, 15 years, is going to change a lot. And one final point in this regard. 
You mentioned income inequality. Income inequality in the United States is as bad as it's been since 1920s when we had the Great Depression. But it's getting worse than even that now. And that's because not only do we have income inequality and a lack of social mobility, so people at the bottom think they can rise to the top and actually do, we have what I call the COVID crater. Those people that don't have technology resources, don't have access to the internet, or work in uh, jobs that just are not going to be essential going forward, they are going to lose their jobs or they're not going to have access to the internet. They're not going to be able to work as effectively as people like you and I can. And as a result, they are going to be more uh, likely to have greater income inequality and further lack of social mobility than they ever did, ever did before. So it's not a pleasant situation. It's always tempting to say it's getting better and the things that are, are behind us are, are worse than what's going to be ahead. I hope that's true, but I do think we're going to have a long, tough slog for another four to six months before we have this somewhat behind us. Absolutely, David. And of course, hearing in your words uh, that balance that uh, leaders are going to have to strike as they balance, of course, the health uh, in realities as well as the need to start reopening their economies. And you've introduced this idea of a COVID crater, a very real reality, especially in the developing market context where the risk of deepening inequality and the risk of deeper exclusion as the world becomes more digitized in a post-COVID uh, scenario is certainly one that is top of mind for many of us, especially sitting here at the top tip of the African continent. I do want to stay on the subject of leadership, though, but I want to tap into uh, your hat as the host of peer-to-peer uh, -peer, uh, on Bloomberg and the fact that you're constantly talking to uh, leaders from Bezos to Dalio to the Gates. What are some of the underlying um, things that you're picking up from world leaders that perhaps are not too obvious uh, for us who, who don't have that access and maybe are not even being reported into the media that you could share with us trends, if you'd like to think about in that way, that are making an impression and an impact on you at the moment? Well, I have, uh, you're kind to mention this, uh, for the last five years or so, I've had a show on Bloomberg TV and it's broadcast in other parts of the world as well, where um, I interview great CEOs or great leaders of all kinds of walks of life and ask them essentially what makes them tick, how they become leaders, what are their, what are their views of the future. I have a book coming out in a month uh, called How to Lead, published by Simon & Schuster, where I excerpt some of the leading interviews from Warren Buffett or Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or people like that. Um, to summarize, um, people who become successful who are leaders have certain traits in common. One, they learn how to persist. Two, they are willing to overcome failure. Three, they have a vision of where they want to go. Four, they're able to focus on their, their energies on certain areas and make themselves an expert in that area. Five, they learn how to get along with other people and to share the credit. Six, they tend to be highly ethical. Seven, they tend to be, with obvious exceptions, relatively humble uh, because they recognize they had a lot of luck and other good fortune along the way. And next, I would say they also learn how to continually exercise their brain. Um, when they graduate from college, they don't stop reading. They continue to read. Next, they also learn how to communicate, communicate with words by writing or communicate orally by talking or also communicate by leading by example. And I would say most importantly, they are people who want to do something useful with their lives other than just making money or being famous. So they want to give back to society. 
And people that want to do that, I think, are generally going to be very effective leaders. In terms of the current crisis, I've interviewed on lots of other shows I have uh, people who are CEOs and asked them, how are you getting through this crisis? And they're telling me they're managing the companies remotely. They are finding they can do that. But they are also saying to me off air that they don't think they can hire back or will hire back all the employees that they've had to furlough or lay off because their businesses are changing. They also recognize that technology is coming to the fore and people who are not technologically literate are going to be relatively illiterate going forward. The last point I want to make is one you made about the developing markets. In the early 1980s, we kind of renamed developing markets and third world markets. We called them emerging markets as a way to kind of be more uplifting in the sense that they're going to emerge from where they were and maybe someday be more powerful than even the developed markets that we already knew about. And to some extent, that happened. China has become an economic miracle. India is not far behind. And some other countries have done quite well. However, everybody hasn't done that well. And some of these uh, emerging markets are now submerging markets. And they're submerging because the value of commodities has gone down, which was the livelihood for many people in many of these commodities, uh, many of these countries, including uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Secondly, their currencies are not as valued on the international market. And as against the dollar, they're going down, which makes it more difficult for them to buy what they want. Third, the international trade situation has been much more complicated because of tensions between various parties. And so international trade is not quite what it was before. So generally, I think the emerging market countries, when you add in the COVID problems they're going to have, are going to be submerging a little bit more than we would like. And the rest of the world has to pick up and do much more to help the emerging markets survive this. Otherwise, we're going to see many people dying, many people living below the standards they should live. And that's a sad situation for all of us. But hopefully we can recognize this problem and do something about it before it's too late. So, David, I think you've packed a lot into that uh, response. So this idea and this concept of submerging markets as a new grouping that we should be looking out for as emerging markets uh, respond uh, to COVID-19. This idea that there might be a new um, illiterate class, if you will, and those are going to be those that are digitally illiterate. But I did want to come back to your earlier um, points that you shared with us, almost a recipe, if you will, uh, that you have seen as consistent um, in leaders around the world. And my question to you is somewhat uh, a bit on, on its head, which is, was there anything that as you did your research for that book that surprised you, a quality that might be missing that we've traditionally always associated with highly effective leaders um, and highly effective people, that as you looked at this research, you realized that in these current times, this, had some, this was potentially something that had fallen off uh, what makes for highly effective leaders? Well, of course, when you read about highly effective leaders, and they're, sometimes they have biographies that make them sound wonderful, and their autobiographies also make them sound wonderful. Usually don't, people don't write autobiographies saying how bad they are. But when you get to know famous people, you see their warts. Everybody has challenges. Everybody has insecurities, m- mistakes they've made, and so forth. My view, though, is that the most talented people, uh, they recognize that there's a lot of luck to being successful. They also recognize that humility and integrity are very important things. And the best way to lead is lead by example. Do things and you want others to follow you. Um, As we now uh, look at the United States, we now see that some of the great leaders of our country's past 
are people that are being heavily criticized. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. People are saying, well, maybe they were great at their time, but they were slave owners. How can we honor anybody that's a slave owner? Some people say we should tear down the Washington Monument, tear down the Jefferson Memorial, and similar kinds of things. I think the way it's appropriate to look at this is to say that you should always look at history with the idea of learning something from what happened in the past. The theory of history is that you study it so you can avoid the mistakes of the past and improve in the future. So clearly, George Washington was a slave owner, so was Thomas Jefferson, but they helped start our country, they wrote the Declaration of Independence, they helped produce the Constitution. So those are very good things, but you have to take the good and the bad. And so when you meet anybody that's a great leader, you recognize that he has or she has good and bad features, and those people that are really extraordinary are people that have so many good features, they overcome the bad features. Uh, One of the features I mentioned earlier was humility. Now, Nelson Mandela as a perfect example. There is a person who spent 27 years in prison. When he came out, he wasn't vindictive. He actually was quite humble, and I would say very generous to the people who had uh, imprisoned him. That was something that showed his magnanimity and made it so possible for people around the world to say, this is the kind of person I want to follow. And so when you can be magnanimous, when you can be humble, I think you could be a more effective leader and leaders that are arrogant. And there are obviously many, and I don't want to go through all their names because they're probably apparent to people. I think in the end, history will not regard them as being as successful as people like Nelson Mandela. I think humility and recognizing that uh, nobody has all the answers and nobody is able to say that he or she can solve all problems. And I think that's an important factor to consider. Humility, light and shadows. We all have light and shadows. So, David, I want to move on to uh, a philanthropic angle, if you will. We know that you are a signatory to the Giving Pledge. uh, And, of course, this is a pledge where we do see the world's wealthiest giving the majority of their wealth to uh, philanthropic causes. What role do you see uh, philanthropy playing, especially in the world and reality that we find ourselves in right now? And, and maybe at a more personal level for you, um, how have you, from a philanthropic perspective, been engaging with the COVID-19 reality? Well, on the first uh, subject, philanthropy can solve some problems, but not all problems. And I'd like to remind people that philanthropy is derived from an ancient Greek word that means loving humanity. It doesn't mean billionaires writing checks. It means everybody doing what they can to help other people. And it doesn't have to be with money. You can help other people with your energy, your time, your ideas. Volunteering and giving your volunteer time is as valuable as anything can be because you're giving the most valuable thing. You can always make more money if you're inclined to do so. You don't get more time in life. You have very little time uh, to, to spare, and you don't get more of it. So I encourage people who are not fabulously wealthy to find something they're interested in If they can give some money, fine, but give their time, their energy to ideas. Mm. However, I recognize that the problems of the world are so spectacularly big in some cases, there isn't enough uh, volunteer help or enough um, philanthropic wealth to solve all these problems. Governments exist to solve these problems. But I do think philanthropy can make a difference. For example, in sub-Saharan Africa, I think what the Gates Foundation has done in trying to eliminate um, certain diseases, or what Jimmy Carter did in trying to eliminate river blindness, among other things, in in sub-Saharan Africa, parts of sub-Saharan Africa, or what um, 
Uh, other people have done uh, Aliko Dangote and what he's done with Bill Gates. Uh, and uh, many other people are too numerous to mention what they've done to help solve healthcare problems that still exist, of course, in sub-Saharan Africa. I think it's a sign that philanthropy can be important, but it can't solve all the problems. In my own case, I have uh, committed to giving away basically all of my net worth um, before I die. Hopefully, I'll live a reasonable life period of time so I can give it away. I've given my children a good education and, uh, you know, and, and other kinds of things that are important to a, uh, to a young person growing up but I don't want to burden them with enormous amounts of money. Uh, they may not agree with that point of view, but I think it's better not to inherit gigantic sums and make it on your own. So I am giving it away, and I have redirected some of my money uh, to things like uh, health relief for people that need uh, additional medical attention, to uh, food, uh, people who need additional food-related uh, kinds of things. Um, I have a, a show in Washington, D.C., where I interview essentially every week a local philanthropic organization in need of money, and we have directed some of our own money to that organiza- those organizations. So I've done a little bit, but I, I can't solve all these problems. So I've just done what I can do realistically. So loving humanity. And what I'm hearing in your words, David, is almost an invitation for all of us with whatever we have, wherever we are, to love humanity in any way that we can. And of course, to accept that philanthropy isn't always going to solve every single problem that exists in the world. Let's get into some private equity conversation now. If we take a look at the markets, we do see that the markets are quite volatile. And the expectation is that they're going to stay this way for a while longer while the the pandemic is still around with us until we get it under control. Where do you see, David, private equity fitting into uh, the investment strategy? Um, And in particular, uh, with a view to manage uh, some of this volatility and deliver returns over the long term? I think the public markets are much ahead of where they really should be. Um, Given the state of the economy, the public markets, certainly in the United States, are well ahead of where I think they should be. And I do think that you're likely to see some declines and some gyrations over the next several months or a year or so until this is fully behind us. I also think that's true in Europe and other parts of the world where the public markets, in part because there's been a lot of debt available, cheap credit has been there, government support has been there, certainly in the United States and to some extent in Western Europe. So I think you have to be very wary of these high market values. And people should also recognize that the high values in the market indexes reflect the fact that the technology companies are doing spectacularly well. Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, Apple, they're doing so well, they're driving up the the indexes, whereas the indexes don't reflect how restaurant companies are doing or travel companies are doing. So be wary of these indexes. Second point I want to make is that the most important thing I tell people who have some money is is not to lose it. It takes a long time to make money. It takes a very short time to lose it if you're not very careful. And so what I tell people is if you have money and you made it in a given area and you're a very talented person in an area, don't assume you're a genius in investing as well or you're talented in investing. Give people money who know how to invest money. And the most important thing that people who invest money have to take care of is to not lose what they're given. So take prudent risks. In the case of private equity, Private equity has outperformed public markets for quite some time, and it is doing so now. But private equity is not without its weaknesses. We do have challenges. We have a fair amount of money to invest. We have talented people. My own firm is doing quite well in terms of our existing investments. 
But nobody should expect you're going to double, triple, or quadruple your money overnight. If you're, somebody tells you you're going to do that, you should run the other way. What you should do is give your money to people that are prudent, have been through good and bad times before, and try to get realistic rates of return. Realistic rates of return is much better than saying, the market is in a free fall. I'm now going to go in at the bottom and buy something. If you look at the Forbes 400 list in the United States, there are 400 people who are the wealthiest people in the United States. Not one of those is somebody who didn't know something about investing, went into the investment market at the bottom of a recession and picked a lot of great stocks and companies to buy, and all of a sudden they got into Forbes 400. That does not happen. So be wary of trying to find the bottom in the market and be wary of thinking the market is top as well. Mm. So with all that caution, uh, David, as a private equity investor, what are you finding interesting and attractive right now? Clearly, some values of some companies have gone down. So companies in the tourism industry, hotel industry, restaurant industry are very, very cheap. And so you have to be careful and make sure they're going to survive. But there are some opportunities that are cheap in industries that have been hard hit. However, the industries that we think are particularly attractive now are ones that are technology related, technology related. So uh, we have invested a fair bit in these technology companies, buyouts, growth capital companies, uh, that we're likely to grow to take advantage of this COVID-19 environment. Uh, example of that is telemedicine. We've invested in a number of telemedicine companies where people are getting uh, doctors to give them advice and so forth and care uh, over, over the Internet or through uh, other kinds of technology devices. And I think you're going to see a lot more growing, a lot, uh, growth in that area, a lot more growth in that area. I also think you're going to see a lot of people um, saying that they want to um, – uh, invest in financial service industry-related things that are going to be prudent. In other words, a lot of people recognize now that when you have a recession or times are tough, you want to make sure you have enough cash, enough liquidity. And so investing with people that will make certain that you keep your cash and keep your liquidity, it won't get lost, is also going to be a very valuable thing to do. And last, I would say, is that there will be some opportunities in the emerging markets for sure. Some things are going to be very depressed in pricing, but you have to be very careful what you do and make sure you are investing with people who actually know what they are doing. And there's nothing better than making certain that you're giving your money to people that have experience through good and bad times and who are investing their own money alongside you. That's a very important criteria. Whenever you're investing, make sure people are investing alongside you. They have the same parallel interest. They're not making their money just on the fees. They are cautious people. That's what you want to invest with. Mm, some, some really significant in, insights there, David. But staying with the markets a little bit longer, there seems to be a disconnect between the stock market and the economy at the moment. Is this something that we should be worried about? Or is there a different perspective or lens that we should be bringing into how we're seeing the markets in relation to the economy right now? Remember, the stock markets are forward indicators. And people that buy stocks are typically uh, thinking that they're going to know what's going to happen in the market in the economy a year from now. So when the markets are very high as they are now relative to where you would expect them to be, it's because a lot of people think that the markets are going to rebound. Now, I think there might be a reassessment of that to some extent because the recovery in the United States seems to be going slower than we once thought because of the, of the breakout of more and more COVID cases in the South and the West of the United States. So I think people are beginning to be a little more cautious about this. But remember, one of the things that is fueling the stock market in the United States is $3 trillion of additional uh, relief from the federal government 
and four to six trillion dollars of additional financial support from the Federal Reserve. Without that support, the markets would be way down. I also think that the markets will gyrate a lot uh, because you have a lot of technical traders, a lot of computer trading. And so one day you're going to see the market go up by a thousand points and down by a thousand points another day. And I think it can make you very dizzy and very confused. So I think unless you're a professional trader, unless you really know what you're doing, and this is your livelihood, I would not spend a lot of time looking at stocks unless you're working with people that actually know what they're doing. And I think private equity avoids some of these gyrations because we tend to be long-term holders and add value over a long period of time. So I do think the markets are a little bit ahead of where they should be, but I am very cautious about that because I don't think the markets are an accurate indicator right now of where the economy is currently. It might be an accurate indicator where it's going to be a year or two from now. Well, David, another area that can make you dizzy and confused is politics. So I would want us to turn to politics for a moment and maybe start off uh, with the U.S. presidential elections that are about four months away. Um, when we are looking at this uh, picture, we are seeing uh, Biden moving ahead with uh, having to do little and, uh, and uh, not having to say much either. Quick thoughts on uh, a Biden presidency from you, and also what would your expectations be of a Biden administration? Well, I want to caution everybody that political polls four months ahead of an election are not always accurate. Uh, Hillary Clinton was well ahead of uh, Donald Trump, uh, you know, four years ago at this time. Uh, But clearly Donald Trump has a challenge. Uh, presidential elections in the United States, when a president is running for re-election, are essentially a referendum on the president. And therefore, whether Biden says something or does something or appears in his basement or doesn't appear in his basement is really less relevant to how Trump is doing handling the economy and the health care crisis. So it's really a referendum on him. And when presidents have good economic times, they tend to get re-elected. When presidents don't have good economic times, like Jimmy Carter, George Herbert Walker Bush, Gerald Ford, all running in a, in a re, for re-election in a recession, they lost. It's been more than 100 years since we've had a president run for re-election and won during a time of recession. So Donald Trump clearly has an uphill battle right, right now. They could turn around. Maybe the COVID situation will get, will get solved. Maybe there'll be a vaccine. Maybe the economy will come back. Or maybe there'll be some crisis where people will rally around the president. That often happens. But right now, I think Joe Biden, if he were elected, and I can't say he will be, but if he were elected, I think he will have a traditional democratic uh, foreign policy, which is to say, re-engage with the allies in Europe and allies around the world, try to deal with the China tensions as best he can, try to re-engage with the Iranian situation in terms of the agreement we had, re-engage with the Paris Climate Accord, and probably try to strike up some renewed uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership that deals with trade in Asia. Uh, I do think that uh, if there is a President Biden, he will reassemble foreign policy experts who largely served in the Clinton and Obama administration. So you'll see a lot of faces that you've seen before. Uh, but it's hard to go out and get people who have no foreign policy experience to serve in those areas. So typically the people who have the experience will be people who served in Clinton or o- on the Obama administrations. So I don't think there'll be a lot of surprises if you if you see uh, Joe Biden becoming president. 
So I do want to come back, David, to uh, this global uh, relations and trade aspect that you've just shared with us. But before I do that, um, in the scenario that Trump does get to the top of the hill in that uphill battle and does uh, see and we do see a turnaround in sentiment, what would the implications of another four years of Trump be for the U.S. and maybe even the world? Well, uh Donald Trump has not been very specific about what he wants to do in a second term. My experience over 40 years or so is that when you are president of the United States and you uh, serve for four years, you're very tired, and you actually have a hard time thinking about what you want to do in a second four-year period. So very rarely do presidents lay out a second-term agenda uh, that is much different than basically saying, I'll give you more of what I've already given you. So Donald Trump, if he's reelected, will be 74 years old, going on 75. 74 and 75-year-old men and women don't change very much. What you see is what you're going to get. You know, maybe you can change a 20-year-old. Maybe you can change a 30-year-old. 74 and 75-year-old people don't change much. So what you have seen is probably what you're going to see in the future. There will be a lot of, uh, uh, you know, discussions with allies about things that allies will find controversial, uh, there'll be a lot of uh, saber rattling. There will be a lot of uh, coming and going of the administration, a lot of personnel turnover, um, I suspect. But again, President Trump has not said exactly what he wants to do. And so we don't know for certain what he intends to do in a second term. But I don't expect it would be much different than the kind of things you've seen today. If you like those things, as some people in America do, then you'll get that again. If you don't like those things, well, then you won't be happy. That's, that's a very poetic way of putting it. So I want to come back to global uh, uh, relations and trade before we begin to wrap up, David. And I want to bring in, in particular, the relations between the West and China and juxtaposition these against uh, a Trump or a Biden presidency. Uh, what are the two scenarios that we're likely to be seeing in terms of how those relations might play themselves out if there is a second term for Trump uh, or, on the other hand, if there is a Biden presidency? Okay, so um, the most important bilateral relationship in the world is U.S.-China. They're the two biggest economies in the world. Throughout history, over the last thousand years or so, it's never been the case that the two biggest economies in the world said, hey, you know what, we got a good thing going here. Let's cooperate. Let's just work together as closely as we can. It doesn't work that way. The two biggest economies in the world inevitably have tensions, and so we have tensions with China. Um, I think throughout the campaign, you're going to see a lot of China bashing. There are no votes in the United States for saying China is wonderful particularly after COVID-19. So nobody is going to say, no Democrat, no Republican, hey, China is really great. We love them. They're doing a great job. We want to embrace them even more. That will not happen during the campaign. The Chinese know that. They're very sophisticated. They know that they're going to be beaten up in the campaign, and they'll wait until the election is over. If Donald Trump is reelected, I suspect he will say, look, I want to get the second phase of my trade agreement. I really like Xi Jinping. Let's uh, forget about COVID-19. It's kind of behind us now. And I suspect he will try to embrace a closer relationship. If Joe Biden is elected, I think he will probably try to have a closer relationship and say that we won't try to do the things that Donald Trump did, but there will be more emphasis on human rights. What's going on in Hong Kong will probably be more of a focus of the Biden administration than the Trump administration, though the Trump administration is, is doing some things about that. I don't know that either administration could do that much to change what's going on in Hong Kong. That's probably unrealistic at this moment. 
But I do think that American foreign policy towards China will be a more traditional foreign policy of Obama-like foreign policy or Clinton-like foreign policy if Biden is elected. If Trump is elected, I suspect you'll see the usual you know, confrontation and then making it up and then confrontation and then make up that, that we've seen before. So I don't want to say which one is better. Obviously, uh, the trade agreement that President Trump did is a good agreement for the United States. If there's a phase two, I think it could be even better. But we're going to see this for the next uh, several generations uh, of tension between the United States and China because we're going to be the biggest two economies in the world for at least another 30 or 40 years. I'm going to be very sneaky and sneak in one question which relates to Africa. Any thoughts from you, David, around whether we are going to see uh, Africa coming back onto the map, especially in the context of foreign policy? Uh, we haven't really seen that uh, in, in a Trump administration. I think uh, the conversation and the narrative and the foreign policy with Africa has l- really fallen off the radar. Is this something that you could see research um, under Biden presidency? I don't think that President Trump is that focused on sub-Saharan Africa. He hasn't really spent time in that area. It wasn't an area of focus. President Obama spent a little more time in it, but he was sensitive to the fact that he had African roots and he didn't want to be seen as favoring Africa too much. So he bent a little bit backwards to not be seen as being too favorable to many things happening in Africa because of the, uh, uh, the perception that maybe he was, uh, you know, descended from, uh, you know, his father was from there. Uh, President uh, Bush did a very good job with PEPFAR in Africa and deserves a lot of credit for what he did. If President uh, uh, Biden becomes president or Vice President Biden becomes president, I suspect his administration will spend more time on on uh, sub-Saharan Africa than, than, other, uh, than probably President Trump would. And I think the biggest challenges, obviously, in sub-Saharan Africa are dealing with COVID-19, dealing with the effects of uh, the recession, uh, dealing with uh, some uh, government corruption issues in certain countries. But clearly, uh, South Africa and Nigeria are the driving forces in the, in the sub-Saharan African economy. I think Nigeria is by far the biggest uh, population and uh, South Africa the biggest economy. And I think that's where the area of focus will be for uh, President Biden, if there is a President Biden. And as we let you go, David, uh, just... A word of advice, if you will, that you might share with uh, our clients that have joined us on this webcast. As you think about the next five to 10 years, what, okay. what, what might you like to share with them from an investment perspective, a life perspective, or just philosophically, what would you like to leave them with? I am 70 years old, as I mentioned. Um, I always viewed myself as a baby boomer. And not until COVID-19 that I recognize that people now look at me like a senior citizen. My children were calling all the time and saying, Dad, are you okay? Uh, people are calling me and saying, are you protecting yourself? And as I realize it, I realize how fragile life is. We've lost 140,000 Americans. Some of them are people that I knew. And some of them were my age or younger. And so what it has made me think about and what I'd like to convey to everybody is just how fragile life is. Uh, when you get to be 70 years old in the United States, if you get an illness, you can go to a doctor, you get medical treatment, you can probably live to 85 or 90 because we have great medical care, as there are in other parts of the world as well. And you don't think about your life being uh, taken away in one or two weeks. Because COVID can take away your life in one or two weeks, I've begun to think about what is the most important thing I want to do with the rest of my life. And I've begun to dust off my bucket list and start saying, okay, I got to get these things done. Because if something bad happens to me, I'm not going to be able to say goodbye to my loved ones. I may not be able to do all the things I hope to do when I'm in my 80s. 
So it has made me re- rethink about the fragility of life and the importance of life, and has always made, made me realize that the most important thing in life is leaving a good legacy, and there are two ways to do that. One is your children. They're going to be your perpetual legacy. And so make sure your children are, are set for life and doing the things that you think they should be able to do and help them. And secondly, what you can do to help humanity, giving to other people is more important than buying a work of art or buying a yacht. Helping other people leave, uh, lead their dreams and, and live up to their potential. So I've tried to enhance my philanthropic giving, do more things that will make me proud of what I've done with the wealth that I've been able to uh, accumulate. And I hope in, all, in the end that everybody's listening will say, what can I do to make my life more enjoyable? The best way to do that is to make certain your children, your other family members are taken care of, but also that you're doing other things to help people. And remember, stay healthy. Life is very fragile. David, thank you so much. Life is very fragile. Thank you for your curiosity and allowing us to tap into us. Thank you for an out-of-the-ordinary conversation uh, and an out-of-the-ordinary value that you have shared with the thousands of clients uh, across the world that have tuned into this conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you, and thank you so much for joining us. And to all of you, wherever you are in the world, for myself, Nozi Poshabalala, and the Investec Wealth and Investment Team, it's goodbye. Thank you. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Wealth and Investment, a division of Investec Securities Proprietary Limited, is an authorized financial services provider and member of the JSC.